My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Good morning, everyone. Today's guest is Shelby Forsythia. She's the author of Your Grief, Your Way and Permission to Grieve. She's also the host of a podcast called Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. Through a combination of practical tools and intuitive guidance, she helps grieving people reclaim their power and peace of mind after devastating loss. Her work has been featured on Huffington Post, Bustle, and The Oprah Magazine. I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today. So welcome, Shelby. Thanks so much for coming on the Morning Meeting podcast. Thank you so much for having me here uh, in the morning, (laughs) where we are, respectively. So um, I'm really excited. You have a new podcast coming out, um, specifically focusing on books around grief, right? Yes, I've not revealed anything to the public yet, so that's all I'll say. (laughs) Okay. Well, today we're going to talk about some books, some of your favorites. Um, But why don't you tell us just first a little bit about you and how you got into this field and what brings you here? Yeah. Well, the the short story of it is that I lost my mom uh, when I was in college, when I was 21. I was finishing my senior year of school and she she had breast cancer that came back suddenly and she died while my sister and I, we were both in college at the time, we're on winter break. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought at that time in my life that I was going to go into advertising. I was a communications and graphic design major. I specialized in copywriting Um, and I had these big dreams of busting glass ceilings in the ad space. You think of mad men or ad men, um, and historically, and even now that space is anywhere between 90 and 97%, uh, male when you think of CEOs in the space. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to start climbing ladders. I'm going to break glass ceilings. I'm going to get the corner office, um, and help bring up other female identified people alongside me in that world. Um, and then when she died, it was as if most or all of the things I'd been aspiring to before her death kind of just into thin air. It's like they dissolved or they vanished. Um, And that's not to say that they weren't important anymore, but my, my drive to achieve them or really race after them um, was gone. And in the years that followed, I kind of tried to realign myself back on that path, but found more, that I was career-wise just wandering between things that that sounded like fun. Um, so I was an administrative assistant for uh, for a couple of years in a couple of different places, which is something I'd done before. I was a florist for a while, and that's something I continue to do. Um, waited tables at some really cool places in downtown Chicago. Um, but as I was getting in touch with my grief and with myself as a griever, which took about a year and a half or two years, because for the first a little while I resisted anything that had to do with actually exploring my grief. I both was not ready to feel it. And then of course we live in a society that tells us not to feel it. And so I was really repressing what that was. But as I started to um, let it in and explore it, I started posting things I was learning from grief books and from podcasts like this one 
on my private Facebook page. And I had a bunch of people message me and say, wow, this is really helpful to me, or I've never heard anything like this. Uh, can you share more? And so I ended up creating um, a public Facebook page where I would go live on Wednesdays and just talk about what I was learning about grief. Um, and enough people, you know, came to that and said, you have a really good voice for this. Why don't you start a podcast so we can subscribe to it? And so I did. And then enough people listened to the podcast that said you should write a book. And so I did. Um, and, and it has just progressed into this beautiful little grief business in the world where I produce free podcasts for people to listen to. I, I lead workshops where a bunch of us get together and talk about common themes like anxiety or perfectionism and grief or anticipatory loss. Um, and then I, I work with clients one-on-one -on -one too, as what I call a grief guide. I'm not a certified mental health professional, but I'm somebody who has studied grief intensely now for seven years um, and have been certified in different frameworks relating to grief. And so when people come to me, they're not getting uh, like a holistic mental health experience necessarily that you would receive from a counselor or a psychiatrist, but somebody who is like intimately aware of the experience of grief. And I can do that dual mode have the frameworks, the vocabulary, the logic, the systems that a lot of other people have invented to contain grief, but also this intuitive kind of experience of remembering what my own grief was and also hearing, listening, holding space for the grief experiences that my clients bring to me. And so much of that is just about saying what needs to be said. What's the truth that's in the room that, that nobody is speaking? What's the permission that we're failing to grant ourselves here? Or what is a third way of seeing that falls outside of society's context of right and wrong? And so it's like, how can we break out of um, these, all the ways that we imprison ourselves in our grief? So that's a, a pretty roundabout way of saying, I never thought I'd be in this field of grief. I don't know that anybody in the grief space sets out to be in the grief space. Everybody I've met is like, I never thought I'd be here. And I think, I was like, I think that's a consensus between all of us. Um, and also now that I have arrived here, I fear, I feel very much that, um, I have found a calling in this wound that is still so, um, suppressed, unnoticed by, or, or kind of glossed over by the rest of the world. We still need more grief workers in the world. And I'm really um, proud and honored to be one of them. Well, I'm proud and honored to know you. Ditto. <laughs> um, so tell us about the podcast that you have. Yes. Uh, so the one that's been out now um, for three and a half years is called Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. Uh, and when I started it, I, I started it with this recognition that we all return to our lives after loss in different ways. And so it was very much a platform for how does that happen for a lot of people with the hope that people listening would get ideas for how to return to their lives in ways that resonate with them, because there's no one path to return to life after loss again. Um, and loss uh, is, is a larger umbrella than death. And so I've had people on the show who've talked about divorce or pet loss or job loss um, or, or breakups or romantic losses, things like that. And it, it kind of is a podcast that has some kind of answer to the question, not the answer, but a answer to how do you return to your life when the funeral is over, when the divorce is final, after the diagnosis has been made? Where do you go after that? What happens after that? The, the things that you're thinking, the behaviors that you're doing, and ultimately the actions that you're taking. Mm, I love that. And I love that you're continuing to do this. I think one of the things that, you know, Another thing that our society does is often, you know, puts a time frame on our grief. So mm. 
we have, you know, a month, or six months, maybe a year. Um, and then people stop talking about it and assume that, you know, your loss doesn't matter anymore. And it's very nice that you're shining a light on the fact that grief goes on forever. I think that's a really important message. We all continue to grieve our losses forever. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I like that you say that because it's so frustrating that grief is so often invisible. And so we look fine. We're upright. We're moving about our days. We're going to work. We're taking care of our kids. We're doing carpool. We're feeding the dog. We're, you know, we are perhaps logistically or physically in some ways returning to our lives again, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we we have been drastically changed. Um, But from the outside, it's like, oh, we look fine. And so everybody around us just assumes we're fine. Mm-hmm. And I think for as long as we live, we will always be coming back from our losses. Even 20 years from now, I'll, I'll still be trying to come back from the loss of my mother. It will yep. look very different than the first one, two, three, four, five years of mm-hmm. coming back from her death. But yes, I will always be returning to my life again from the very worst thing that happened to me. Yeah. Wow. And despite the fact that that was the very worst thing that happened, you've had some other difficult things that have happened to you. I think we talked about once before that um, your father was also very sick when you were in college. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother's death was kind of the tail end of what I affectionately refer to as the four years of hell, which unfortunately coincided with the whole time I was at college. And this included uh, my father experiencing job loss in the first year or so, which kind of put our family into a place of instability. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the queen loss. It was, one chink in the armor that was followed by so many other losses. Um, I came out of the closet as a queer woman in the South, which was both accepted and not accepted. So that was a weird limbo to be living in. Um, My dad was diagnosed with two identical brain aneurysms, one on either side of his head. And they were some of the largest recorded in the state of North Carolina to the point where we thought at at one point um, he was at a very real risk of dying. And so I watched my father reckon with his, mortality and whether or not he wanted to actually undergo surgery because it's a scary prospect having your skull cut open um and and watching him really decide whether or not that was something to pursue and then the aftermath of that is him being a changed person because when people go digging around in your brain you inevitably become a different human um and the aftermath of that and then very shortly after he um completed his his final treatments my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we were thrown into this world of hospitals, carpools, casseroles again. Um, and each time these losses occurred, I kept telling myself, like, we're going to be out of the woods soon. This is all going to be over soon. And then when my mom died, I was like, oh, this is not going to be over soon. It's like that dog that's sitting in the house that's on fire, that comic strip that goes around the internet. And nobody um, usually posts the whole comic but the, the the one that everybody shares is the dog sitting in the house at the kitchen table and the whole thing's on fire. And he's like, this is fine. Um, and it's a commentary. I'm like, wow, the world is burning and things are really awful, but I'm going to tell the story that it's okay. And what a lot of people leave out is the last panel of the comic, as you view it as a whole strip, is this dog finally like losing his mind uh, and screeching at the top of his lungs. This is not fine and reacting to the gravity of the experience that he's in. And that's kind of how I saw myself progressing through these four years of experience, because I think 
at some point we tell ourselves the story and society tells us the story that that we're resilient, we're unbreakable, we can handle it, we've got this, we're about to turn the corner. It's all like there's this relentless optimism um, that is so much a part of our society. And I think it's done a lot of good things for us. I'm not here to demonize that experience. But, and also after my mom died, it was like my capacity to maintain that story for myself in my life just vanished. Mm-hmm. You know? I love that you just said that because I really feel like if we could just be real and authentic for even short periods of time, we can get to a better place. Mm-hmm. But if we pretend all the time that we're in that place already, we're actually never going to get there. So if we could just give ourselves this gift of authenticity for even short periods, because I I think it's not always safe to be authentic. It's not always possible to be authentic all the time. But if we can find spaces where we can do that, it actually makes us such happier, more content people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing I ask when I work with clients sometimes is what do you need to say here that you can't say anywhere else? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just, I'm overwhelmed. I'm tired. Sometimes it's it's uh, very deeper, shocking things of, you know, my partner died, so now I'm afraid I'm going to die before my kids do and leave them parentless. What am I going to do? And so right. there's these um, <clears throat> these fears we refuse to acknowledge, but also even our own emotions that we refuse to acknowledge or tell the truth about because we're scared of looking like um, we're weak or that we don't care or that we're paranoid or crazy. And it's vital. Yeah. Just like you said, to find places and spaces and people that our truth is safe with. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there were um, any books specifically while you were in college. I don't know if you were reading about grief and loss at the time, if you were really trying to repress a lot of those feelings, but were there books back then that you read that you found helpful or at what point did books start to become important in your grief journey? Yeah. Well, I think um, books arrived on the scene probably about a year and a half or two years after my mom's death. And it was kind of a dual, there's a dual reasoning for that. Part of it um, was my resistance to engaging with my grief because people, um, well-meaning people, well-intentioned people would like drop off books when they dropped off casseroles or um would press things into our hands at my mom's memorial service. And I was just so bitter about the fact that she died and all that I was like, F this and F you. And I don't want any of your resources and I'm not interested in any book. And I just want to torch the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was definitely uh, resentment <laughs> and the story of a book's not going to fix my grief. So what good is this that you just handed me? I was not ready to receive that yet. Um, and then simultaneously grief robbed me of my ability to, read and comprehend text and sometimes audio. So podcasts were a little bit easier to to listen to, but um, audio especially, or uh, text especially was, I would stare at paragraphs on a page and just, I was like, I know their words. I know they mean something, but I'd read the whole thing and not understand what I just read. Mm. And then I would feel exhausted by the effort and exhausted by the fact that I'd have to try again. Um, And so it was like this never ending loop of like, you have to read, you have to comprehend it. Because I was doing my senior thesis the last semester after my mom died. I was just thinking about that. Like, 
it wasn't just grief books at school. Right. It was school. So my, so my brain capacity was very reserved for anything school related and anything grief related just didn't matter. It got put way on the back burner in favor of surviving my final semester, making it out alive. Um, so books entered the picture about a year and a half or two years in. And one of my favorites, I, the one I continue to recommend even now, is a beautiful, small, small, easy read of a book called On Living by Carrie Egan. And she tells her own story of loss, which involves um, a, a drug overdose on the part of a hospital where she was giving birth to her son and how that permanently affected her psychologically. But also she's a hospice chaplain. And so she has sat bedside with the dying for for much of her life. And they're these beautiful little vignettes. You can read like one chapter of it at a time and it stands alone. You can read the whole thing as a narrative, but you can read one chapter at a time and it stands alone. And just the way that she talks about how people process grief and process loss. And it even kind of has these themes of like the regrets of the dying and the questions, how do you actually want to live your life after bad things happen? Um, where can you tell the truth? What secrets are you keeping? The questions that she raises based on the people she interacts with and the massive grief experience of becoming a different person because of someone else's accident at a hospital is, it, it was just wildly cool and comforting to me. And the vocabulary she uses is so small. And that's mm-hmm. not to say she's not an intelligent writer, but it's not, um, it's not this dense or heavy science text. It's mm-hmm. very much, she speaks, she writes like she speaks. And so to read it is like, oh, I'm being spoken to here um, is one of my favorites. One that I read much later that I wish I would have had um, in my 20s, right after my mom died, is Modern Losses book that's mm-hmm. of the same name called Modern Loss uh, by Rebecca Sofer and Gabby Berkner, as well as many other authors that they invited to contribute to the book with them. And this is lost stories from people in their 20s and 30s. And they're compiled around different topics like um, sex after loss or physical possessions after loss or what to do uh, regarding sibling relationship after a parental loss or um, things about money or suddenly being orphaned uh, at a very early age or how to navigate college. And they're these little essays. It's a giant book of little essays about grief, all contributed by the authors themselves who've both lost parents um, at very early ages and by other people who've experienced massive loss in their 20s and 30s. And and the reason it's called modern loss is because even right now, I lost my mom in 2013, we're now in 2020. Um, There's something about the times that we are living in now, our access to technology, how digitized everything has become, as well as grief support and grief conversations being more widely accessible that make the way we grieve right now very different from how our parents grieved and how their parents grieved and how their parents grieved. And so there's something modern about this loss. And so you'll get funny stories about YouTube and, and Facebook in this book, modern loss. And so it speaks to grief for these times right now. I'm wondering, there was another book I think that you mentioned um, that you really liked that I think we talked about once before together um, about a funeral home director. Um, oh yes, this is another one of my favorite books. Um, I have so many favorites. <laughs> How can I possibly <laughs> choose? Um, because as soon, as soon as I discovered that grief books existed, I like swallowed them whole. I I was like, oh my god, other people are talking about this. This is so amazing. And once my brain could comprehend again, 
I was just, even now I just drink them in like a sponge. Um, The book Confessions of a Funeral Director by Caleb Wilde. And this is similarly structured to Carrie Egan's book, but he's a sixth generation funeral director who has experienced many losses of his own, but has also borne witness to loss for most or all of his life. And so each chapter is a little um, story about his experiences as a funeral director, but also asks greater questions about loss and greater questions about what it means to be human. And it's not a framework for walking through loss. It's not necessarily a book for that, but it's a it's a commentary on what it is like to experience loss over and over and over again and to be human. Um, and how each, gosh, each chapter really shows how different families process different kinds of losses. And it reminds you that there is no one right way to grieve. that I just noticed actually as you've been talking about all of these books none of them are really um how-to books Mm-mm. um which I appreciate very much um I try to not that there's not some really good tips out there about you know coping but um really all the books that you just talked about are really more about normalizing feelings validating people's experiences I think that um a lot of what I was looking for in the aftermath of my mom's death was some kind of solution or framework for get me out of here. Mm-hmm. When what I really needed is the validation of you're not alone and other people have made it out of this alive. And so mm-hmm. I think I was searching for framework and action steps and like, I get this image of like the Buzzfeed listicle of like, if you just do steps right. one mm-hmm. through seven, you'll be great. Um, and I did read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work and I have read the grief recovery method and I have read second firsts, which provide these beautiful frameworks for returning to the world again after the world ha- after the worst happens. But I found what has impacted me like on a heart and soul level is hearing people's individual stories or collections of stories. Um, because I myself have asked these these larger questions about like, what's the point of all this? What am I doing here? These, these questions that inevitably come lumped in with loss. Um, And oftentimes these memoirs or anthologies are speak more to that experience than a logistical framework ever will. And it's not there like one's not better or worse than the other. I think there are people who resonate with a framework and people who resonate with stories and people who like both. I like all of it. (laughs) Unless somebody is like, this is the one way. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like, bad religion. (laughs) In which case I'm like, just just, discard goes in the discard pile. Um, But uh, I I think the beautiful thing about where we are right now in the world in 2020 is the, the level of access that we have to these stories. I mean, you can Google now, gosh, Google is amazing. I don't know how I would have done grief without Google, um, which is honoring uh, everybody who's listening right now who did have to do grief without Google, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can, people will ask me, Hey, do you have a book recommendation for the loss of a twin sibling? And I'm like, no, I haven't read a book about the loss of a twin sibling yet, but let's Google and find out if one exists. And then you go, um, to, to IndieBound or other bookstore platforms. And you find that there are so many that there's celebrity memoirs. There are, you know, how-to books, there are slice of life kind of humor pieces about the loss of my twin sister or what you know, whatever it is. And, and wow, it's just so um, 
freeing. You can get your breath of air a lot faster thanks to technology and grief. Yeah. And the good news is because there are so many that if you pick one up and it's not resonating with you, there's another one out there that may resonate better. Yes. It's a little like being in a dressing room and you're like constantly trying on the jeans to see if they fit. Right. <laughs> um, and some of them are really bad fits. And some of them are like, well, this is kind of almost what I would wear. Um, and then when you know that you've like found a great fit for you and your grief, they're like, you're saying the words that I, that I use in my own vocabulary. Your story is so similar to mine. Or you live in the same part of the world as I do, or you had a similar growing up experience. It's like, I'm going to wear these jeans for the rest of my life. Yep. They become like, um, for lack of better phrasing, like stable pieces in your Grief wardrobe. Yes, right. <laughs> I think people will find that with music too, that there's, you know, some mm-hmm. songs that just describe your experience so beautifully. Yeah, that's a beautiful parallel. Mm-hmm. So I know I was just saying that I'm not, I, I don't know if I said it, but I think I implied that I'm not a huge fan of the This Is How to Grieve books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to ask you, um, how are you coping right now with? grief in general with the pandemic. Uh, This episode is going to air hopefully after we have a resolution to the election. But right now we're in the middle of like day three, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're in the middle of we still don't know who the president is going to be. There's lots of tension, lots of sleepless nights. How are you coping in good and not as healthy ways? Yes. Well, Mm -hmm. Oh, how am I coping in, in period? A lot of what I do or what I've been doing lately, especially in the past three days, but a lot of times when, when seasons of grief are very heavy um, is easing up on my expectations of myself. Um, not only to produce and accomplish which is, I think, a story that we tell ourselves as a society is that I must do X amount of work in order to be worth something or in order to be valid or in order to be a contributor to my life or my household or whatever story you're telling yourself. Um, So releasing expectations or the illusion that we have to get it all done today. And so I've been been procrastinating a lot (laughs) as a coping mechanism. There are like 20... (laughs) Five unread emails in my inbox, which is very uncharacteristic of me. I'm like inbox zero very much. Um, but right now I'm just like too hard to compose a sentence, too hard to send it, too hard to attach a link. Nope, not going to. Um, and something else too is is giving myself freedom to kind of to eat whenever I want, to sleep whenever I want, to get off social media whenever I want. Anytime I start telling myself a story of obligation or should, I'll immediately come back and question why that is before jumping into the thing. It's not always, I wish I always did this. I wish this was my default setting, but especially right now, it's almost as if grief and loss has trained me through enough seasons and instances of deep mourning that what helps here is not increased pressure to be better or to somehow hack this again, Buzzfeed list of goal, like seven ways to cope with the election um, to not try to hack my way through it. So I have a good time or come out. Okay. Right. But it's like, what would happen if I just 
strived for staying alive and not not dipping into destruction. Like the goal has has recalibrated to I'm no longer aiming for better or for good. Right now I'm literally aiming for neutral. Like if I can get to the end of the day and I I didn't um you know, I didn't drink in excess. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't swear at somebody on the internet. I didn't miss a call with a client that was scheduled weeks ago. I've upheld, you know, what I needed to do there for my business. It's like everything else can fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Loss has taught me a lot about what matters and what does not. And right now for me, the things that are getting top priority are showing up for people like this right now, um, through interviews, through client calls, through things I've committed to already. Um, and then releasing myself from any other pressure or expectations and everything else. That's not, that is like, you are lucky to get a slice of my time right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's not to say, you know, be grateful, bow down to me, whatever. Um, but I am acknowledging my humanity is at its limits. The, what I am able and capable to do as a human is at its limits. Mm-hmm. Something that's coming up a lot in workshops I've been leading lately, especially as we've been building up to the election, is uh, is about the idea of surrender. And we tell ourselves this story as a society, westernized society is perpetually what I'm speaking to because that's what I've marinated in, um, that if we surrender things or if we let them go, that we no longer care. And so we feel as if we're not allowed to give ourselves permission to surrender because we will look as if we no longer give a crap. When in reality, surrender is a very real admission of this is where my humanity ends. I can literally go no further than this. And all of the the anxiety, the what ifs, the worries, the things I can't control that are somewhere out in the future are beyond my scope of power. And so to surrender is to be like, I've done all I can do up to this point. And now I must release the outcome of what's going to happen. I've cast my vote. I've marched in the streets. I've done all the things I can, I've had hard conversations with my family members. I've done all the things I can do to get to this point. And now we must wait for answers. Um, Something I'm trying to teach myself over and over and over again is that to surrender doesn't mean that you surrender how much you are invested in the thing you're caring about. It's it's, um, releasing the pressure of continued effort that you put on yourself in order to prove that you are good because you already are. Yeah. Right. Yes, you are. I love that. I think um, I'm learning throughout this election cycle. Um, I don't think I prepared well. I didn't, Mm. I know we kept hearing that this was going to be a prolonged process. I don't know why I just thought either, no, it's not, or okay, so it'll be prolonged and it won't bother me. Um, And I've been surprised how much, you know, how little sleep I'm getting, how many headaches I'm getting, how cranky I am. Um, I've been surprised. Um, But I think that that's, it's not just the election. I think that, you know, many of us are surprised by grief in general, just Mm -hmm. that it affects us as long as it does or how intensely it it affects us. And um, so I'm constantly, because I didn't necessarily prepare and I schedule too many meetings and I, you know, have things that I need to get done. I am constantly trying throughout my day to think about how can I take better care of myself. And um, I hope everybody that's listening is thinking about ways, you know, if it's the election or other things that are going on, because grief 
is not always something that we can prepare for. But they're thinking about how they can do that. Sometimes we can prepare and sometimes we can't. Yeah. Well, and something I'll acknowledge, especially right now, specifically with regard to the election and the pandemic, mm-hmm. is that we've never done this before. Yeah. And so the ways in which we're overbooking ourselves or that we're expecting to feel a certain way or that, you know, no, we're not. Of course, we're going to have all the, the votes in, in one day because that's what we've <laughs> always done. We've never mm-hmm. lived in a world where the uncertainty has been prolonged in this yeah. way, election and pandemic both. Um and so it's like, oh, I, sometimes I, I, um, I know people can't see me, but I'm pretending to like zoom out of my own head uh, with my <laughs> hand gestures. Um, sometimes I try and zoom out of myself. I'm like, oh, the human thinks that she can do just as much in a pandemic that she can without. How long will this last? Or, oh, the human is really frustrated um, that, uh, that there are still no answers with regard to the election and it's expressing itself through taking three hot showers a day <laughs> and eating a lot of gummy bears. Like, and I'm like, Oh, isn't that interesting? And so instead of assigning this value of like, Oh, this is bad. You're a terrible person. You're only punishing yourself. Um, or how is this possibly productive? How is this good for you? And just kind of the bang, bang, bang that we do on our own heads. I'm like, I'm tired of bruising my own noggin with like mm-hmm. how much I need to be a different person. I'm like, okay, what if, okay, this is a hard week. Get through this one. Yep. take time off. And the next I have, after this interview, I have booked the next three days to do nothing. Um, I've literally you. slated off my calendar <laughs> because I was like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I don't, I think I'm going to need to recover from it, whatever it is. And this is yep. based on, you know, here are all the seasons in my life when I've had to live in some kind of uncertainty for a long time. And here's what's happened after. And so I'm trying to catch up to myself with that wisdom, but how can we know until we lived through it? And so I can't, right. I can't come on and punish myself or punish other grieving people for being like, how could you not have known it? Blah, blah, blah. Um, it's just not kind. And, right. uh, and so even right now in your overwhelm, in your overscheduling, in your um, anxiety and all the ways that it's expressing itself, it is, it's teaching you where your limits are. Mm-hmm. So when, so next week or next month or next year, when more uncertainty rolls in the picture, it's like, okay, I did this once like this and that felt pretty bad. So how can I tailor this experience to give myself, yeah, more freedom and grace? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. If people have more questions for you or want to reach out, I don't know if you're doing virtual individual sessions where people can actually schedule some time to meet with you. How can they do that? Yes. Yeah. Um, so everything I do is at shelbyforsythia.com. That's the podcast books. If you want a fun grief t-shirt, I actually made a few that are really neat. Um, Things that say like your grief matters or ask me about my grief or let's talk about grief invitations Mm -hmm. to allow grief into the room. Um, If you'd like to work with me one-on-one, I would love to have you. I will give a disclaimer that usually I take uh, about December 15th to January 15th off. My mom died the day after Christmas. And so I take about 30 days off to honor all that that was and whatever the heck's going to come up in the season, especially with the holidays and now with the pandemic. Um, So if you'd like to work with me, just know that I may not have availability until January, 2021. You can schedule a consult, but in terms of actually holding sessions, um, Mm -hmm. not until January, 2021. Um, As a disclaimer, up until the, the holidays begin though, I'm leading a series of live workshops based on topics that people ask me to talk about. So dealing with guilt, dealing with perfectionism, navigating anticipatory grief, which very much includes the holidays, um, navigating anxiety, which very much includes this whole year. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, and those are, those are at will. So you can, you can take one and they're uh, 90 minutes on zoom and they're live, 
and they're based on um, my grief growers community responses to when they're available. So East coast to West coast and beyond. They're like, this is the time when we're the most free. So this is always when the workshops are scheduled. Um, and then, yeah, just stay tuned for uh, the new podcast. That's all yeah. about grief books and, and so many more things. I always have more coming out in the world, more that is asked of me, but more that I am called to create as well. That's terrific. Well, I follow you on a lot of social media, so I will be eagerly awaiting all of your announcements and I will have all of your contact information and stuff in the show notes so people can find you. Thank you so much, Mandy. This was such a joy to be with you today. Thank you so much, Shelby, for being on the podcast today. And thank you again to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Next week, I have two guests coming on the podcast, Jesse Guzik and Rachel Warner. They both work at the Cancer Support Community of Central New Jersey. They are child life specialists, and we're going to talk a bit about what that means and how child life specialists can be supportive to children as they're grieving. It's a really interesting conversation about illness and death, and we talk about how we can be supportive to one another during this pandemic. So I hope you'll join us then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.